1: I believe you have my stapler. Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? This is not just a couch. It's just a hard couch! You take the red pill, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. You leave the light on after bedtime. I always thought it would be better to be a fake somebody than a real nobody. Are we going to air it? Of course not
2: hello again seems like it's been a while <laughs> it has it's
0: been a while yeah
2: so um, how are you doing
0: I'm, I'm good i uh just got over the flu which i had last week back from a uh, film festival probably where i caught it um that would be my yeah. guess you yeah know, not knowing anything about
2: you know the festival or, or anything yeah um was it the nashville film festival
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I think I submitted a movie there once. Oh, really? Weirdly enough.
0: If it was uh, set in Nashville or Tennessee, you probably would have been a shoe in There's a lot of that.
2: Well, I I should have just put
0: a title card at the beginning, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that would have caught me in, I guess. Nashville, Tennessee, and then open with a shot of like the strip or something.
2: <laughs> no, there no, there weren't any shots of the strip. I'm I'm more clever than that. You know, give me give me
0: some See, credit. I, I well I would give you more credit if you would be that much of a troll if you would just not try to hide it at all. Just, the worst thing I saw there was uh a New York uh crew had set their film in Nashville and it did feel disingenuous. It felt like it was just to get into this festival. Um and the crowd kind of responded the same way. I mean, I don't know a lot about Nashville, but uh I got the impression that these characters and these people didn't really know what they were talking about and the audience seemed to feel the same.
2: I feel um, I feel like that that horrible uh hack uh Robert Altman started this trend really. <laughs> Uh, with that uh, terrible movie,
0: <laughs> he just used it as a means to get his hands on the, uh, the the Popeye cinematic universe. That was his that was his bit anyway.
2: Popeye is not a bad movie, and I will not allow you to bring it up without, without mentioning how underrated it is.
0: Yeah, you say that. I don't know if it is underrated now. It's got a lot of fans. I okay. think it's been. It's probably I'll, aged better. I'll accept than, that. You yeah. know. <laughs> I I mean I haven't watched it since I was a teenager. So I don't really have strong feelings on it one way or the other, but uh, I do have a lot of film buddies who really, really highly regard it. So All at right. least in my world, it's not Man, I
2: wish I knew your friends.
0: Uh- <laughs> 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 no, nah, you don't want to know them. They're jerks. Who the hell are you? I'm Porter. He said his name was Porter. Porter? Porter? Yeah, real Cro-Magnon looking. You're not going to kill me, are you? Well, what's his first name? <laughs> i
1: don't know you no 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 don't allow me you're one hell of a mosquito to get rid of you i'll swat you with 130 grand it's not hundred. hey perfect yes it's all right he's just killing my alligator bags and shooting holes in my suit man that's just mean that's mean man this february hubba 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 get ready to root for the bad guy. You are crazy. That's why I love you. You just signed your own death warrant for $130,000. What is it? It's the principal or something. Stop it, I'm getting misty. And tell him it's 70, will you? Mel Gibson. What do you mean it's only 70? only 70,000? Hell, my suits are worth more than that.
0: Payback. Get it! All right, get so we're just, uh, just getting into payback. Get I, I wanted to let you know I did put out the... Uh, the latest war machine versus war horse i put out the a little teaser at the end a little promo spot uh for 99 from 99 so i have to to,
2: i I accidentally uh almost listened to to an episode of war machine versus war horse and (laughs) and i i i you know it took it took took 60 seconds of hearing warren beatty in heaven can wait before i realized that this was not uh, Sword and Scale, the the podcast I'm currently listening to. And I was like, wow, this is a really weird opening for 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 that show. Uh, I wonder where they're going to take this.
0: Okay, payback. I would say up to this point in the, our podcast infancy with uh, this particular premise that this is one that I had a lot of experience with. Uh, I liked quite a bit as a teenager. Uh, I think it was fairly popular for an early release, a February release. And, uh, being a teenager at that time, being male, I was sort of in the, I guess, target demo here, but I had no experience at that point with, uh, Donald Westlake's novels, or I guess in this case, Richard Stark, uh, and his character of Parker, uh, which is uh, Porter here. So, uh, I don't know if you did, if you knew any of these, uh, these influences on, on payback, but it was at that point was pretty much a blank slate for me. It was just a Mel Gibson thriller.
2: Well, this was a blank slate for me in that I hadn't seen it. Uh, I never saw the theatrical cut when it came to theaters. I never saw it on pay-per-view. I never saw the director's cut when it came out in two thousand six or whatever. Um, and, and I mean, aside aside from seeing Point Blank, uh, the John Borman movie from nineteen sixty seven, yeah, I don't I didn't know anything about the influences, uh, you know, of this. So I guess I have sort of a vague idea of the kind of character they're 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 creating um, in that respect, um, but. You know, for me, I looked at this as sort of an opportunity. And it'll be interesting because I think we watch these movies in a different way, uh, if I'm correct.
0: Because, I went back and yeah. uh, watched the theatrical first and then uh, did the, as they marketed it, the straight up edition, the director's cut second.
2: Uh, so, yeah, I did the opposite. I watched the director's cut first, and then I watched the theatrical cut. And the reason I did that was I wanted to watch this in the way that the producers at Revolution or whatever Mel Gibson's studio is, the way they were watching it. Um, Icon, Icon Productions. I wanted to watch it the way that they had watched it um, and see what I thought of um, Brian Helgeland's cut first and then the theatrical cut. And I think that produced an interesting result because I don't have the opinion that most people have about um, these two versions. And Brody agrees. Brody agrees with me.
0: Or maybe he's <laughs> disagreeing with you. I, I doubt
2: that very much. <laughs> you say that every time he, he he chimes in. But it's like, you know, I think I think he's like saying, yeah, give him hell, Ben Zook.
0: All right. So what is, uh, so I'm assuming based on what you said, uh, that you're sort of the minority report here that you're favoring the theatrical cut then after watching both.
2: I haven't heard a lot of people express like extreme passion for either one to tell you the truth outside of like, you know, ain't it cool news and stuff like that. Um, but I guess, yeah, I am the minority report. I, Really, I, it was tough for me to sit down and watch the theatrical cut after watching the director's cut because I felt like, okay, there's no way they could have, like, saved this and made this something worth watching. Um, I wasn't a fan. I was not a fan of Brian Helgeland's cut at all. I, I completely agree. And I didn't read a whole lot about it beforehand. I didn't read a whole lot about what they had changed beforehand because I wanted to be completely fresh. But I, I completely, after going back and reading why they changed what they did, I completely understand why. I think it's a really tough character to, to crack when he's just kind of randomly killing people for no reason. Um, you know, throughout the, uh, Helgeland cut, um, specifically the, that there's that, there's the two men who are holding up the suitcases for, um, the, for Coburn's character, and, and it's, and, and, and in the, in the Helgenlands cut, he, he shoots them, and it's pointless, and there's no reason why he had to do that. And so, of course, they changed that in the theatrical one, and, and I think it's a lot better. It makes it, you know, feel a little bit more playful. Um, and in the, in the Helgenlands cut, straight up, um, the, the movie does seem to want to have that sort of playful tone, but it never quite quite gets there. Every time you have some weird hubba-hubba-hubba uh, moment come in that feels like comic relief, it's followed by something really uh, sadistic and crazy and, and dark, and, and you just don't know uh, what to make of it. Um, but so I don't know how I. What were your What are your thoughts?
0: Well, I wonder if it's uh, you know it's a completely fair representation of what. Helgland's version in 98 uh, or 99 what you know whatever the, the original release would have been before this uh reshaping of the film because i do think that the director's cut you know being years later i think it was 2006 when it made its way to dvd uh, i think he was taking the opportunity to, to go further away from the theatrical so I, I I agree with you. There's a lot of setup there, and I had actually forgotten because I'd seen both of these, and I was one of the, the weirdos who like bought the director's cut on DVD like the Tuesday it came out. Like <laughs> I was I was really excited to see it. Um, but at that point, and you know, in all fairness to the theatrical version, uh, it's what got me interested in this this character and started reading some of the Richard Stark novels, and I became a big fan. So I sort of aged into the director's cut and that more stripped down version. And so I I do prefer it. If I'm being honest with myself, I probably wouldn't have thought much of it though as a teenager. I wouldn't have I would have wondered like, well that was a that was a strange film and yeah, I guess Mel Gibson really wanted to play a uh just unrepentant asshole just with no likability and no charm. Uh I understand the studio decisions there, but it is closer and probably the closest approximation we've seen to the Parker character being put on screen. I have a problem. There's a man in my office with a gun,
1: who says that he's going to kill me if we don't pay him back hundred and thirty thousand dollars that one of our lieutenants stole from him. Seven. It's seventy. Look, how much is this guy Carter worth to you? What do you mean? Well, either I get my money or I'll kill Carter. Are you threatening me? I'm not threatening you. I'm threatening Carter. (laughs) An audacious man. Who are you?
0: (laughs) My money. Yes or no? No. Uh, he's not particularly clever. He's just unstoppable in a way. He just he's just so driven uh to get after, you know, whatever the premise of that particular adventure is, if it's money, revenge, what have you, he's just going to do it. And that's probably the most striking thing watching the two of them. And mm-hmm. I can completely understand if an audience and you pay your, you know, six, seven bucks, whatever it would have been at the time, w- wondering like where where's Mel like enjoying this pursuit in any way? Because it is a a guy that wants this 70 grand, but in one film, you're right. He, the theatrical version, he allows himself to kind of like the mission in a way Mm -hmm. he likes, Mm -hmm. he likes pitting, you know, the, the crooked cops against uh, the mobsters and the mobsters against the other mobsters and, and figuring out those connections and how they can, he can motivate them to basically do his bidding there's none of that in the Helglin version. He, he basically shows up. And as you said, he kills, maims, uh, he takes a beating, but he, he basically just gets the attendance award. He just shows up and uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it, that would have worked at all on its own. I think this is, for me at least, this is just a good representation of a director's cut and that I get a decidedly different flavor of the same story. Uh, I don't, and I'll say, this is, a, this is a an unfair point for the director's cut. I have to admit, I really like the way it looks a lot more, but uh, noticing the special features at some point, uh, Brian Helgeland admits that he was just, the, the way the theatrical version looks, that sort of blue tint, that's what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And he only went a different way just to distinguish the director's cut as its own thing. So it's just something that I think actually just kind of worked out all the way around. Like, I think that the theatrical version is far more entertaining and fulfilling as a Mel Gibson action adventure movie. But if you are a fan of the Richard Stark novels, certainly go with the straight up edition. And at least that's, that's my take on it.
2: Um, so to make you feel like less of a freak, um, you know, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I, I went out, uh, in, in 2004, 2005 or whatever, um and I bought the director's cut of Alexander uh the day it okay. came out. Um and I I have since bought the the ultimate director's cut uh of Alexander. Um not the day it came out but the day it was it was uh listed uh for $5 at okay. the used Blu-ray store. Um so
0: so you've improved then. You've, <laughs> <laughs> you're managing.
2: That's a nice way of putting it. Um <laughs> So, and I'm really glad that we finally, like, completely diverged in our opinions, um, on this podcast, because I think this will make for a much more interesting episode and discussion. So, so let's talk about the look of the movie. I okay. think the look of the theatrical cut, while it was kind of trendy and mm-hmm. kind of a fad to do the, to do the bleach bypass thing at that time, um, Minority Report did it after this. Uh, pitch black did the same thing the next year. Um, I still think it adds something to the film. It sort of tells you that this is a world you know where morality black and white morality doesn 't exactly exist, and even on a subconscious level, you know I get that from the theatrical cut um, I think the like I completely agree with you. the photography on an aesthetic level. In the, theater, in the in the, in Helgeland's cut looks a lot better. And, you, you know, and, and, so I completely understand the perspective of, of a DP, um, who has, and, and, a director who has this movie taken away from him. And then suddenly the look, uh, changes to something maybe they wanted, maybe they didn't want it to the same amount of effect that the studio took it to. Um, I can understand that. But at the same time, it serves the movie better. To have it have that desaturated, uh, blue, green tint, uh, going on throughout. So ultimately you have to make the choice that works better for the movie itself. Um, I don't think that Brian Helgelin as a first time director was, was ready for material like this. Um, you know, this is tricky stuff to have an anti-hero like this who you, you have to love to hate him and the, and the, and Helgeland's cut doesn't bring you there. It, it it really doesn't. It, it gets you like close, but then he does something that would seem completely against, uh, you know, his code or, or whatever. and, And you're not sure if you, if you should continue following him. Um, I also think just a lot of the choices that are in like the ending here feel very much like the choice of, of, they feel like a film student kind of choice. The, the weird flashbacks, the completely over the top, um, you know, screaming that, that, uh, Maria Bello's character does to him at the, at the end. Um, you know, it feels like, well, we have to bring the movie to, to a big conclusion in some way. And this is all we can really think of to do. Um, you know, that, that didn't work for me. Um, there, there are a lot of things that I respect about Helgeland's cut. I think casting uh, Sally Kellerman as the Bronson character and having her only uh, heard but not seen is a really strong choice.
1: Yeah, Fred Carter, I wanna to talk to Bronson. Yes. Yeah, sorry to bother you, but I have a problem. There's a man in my office with a gun who says he's gonna kill me if the outfit doesn't pay him $130,000. That 70000 Seven. It's seventy. L- let me talk to him. Her. He wants to speak to you.
2: This is Bronson.
1: How much is this guy Carter worth to you? Worth? What do you mean? Well, either I get my money or I'll kill Carter. <laughs> I don't like to be threatened. I'm not threatening you, I'm threatening Carter. Touche. An audacious man. Who are you? My money, yes or no? <laughs>
2: No, But at the same time, it denies you the satisfying climax of having Bronson and Porter come face to face. And, you know, if Helgeland wasn't ready to make, you know, a successful movie in the way that, um, you know, that he wanted it to be, then he probably should have been happy to have the studio uh, come in and change it and make it a little bit more satisfying. You know what I mean? I don't. I really don't. I don't even think we'd be talking about this movie if uh, Helgeland's cut had been the one released to theaters initially.
0: No, probably not. Um, I think that uh, for me, I think his touchiness on the subject is uh, probably because of it being. Uh, Richard Stark's material. I think he's mm-hmm. probably probably a huge fan of those books, probably a big influence on his his writing. In particular, you know, he uh sort of rose to fame writing uh crime stories on film. And I wonder if he would have been as protective if it had been an original idea of his, if it had just been some sort of spec script. But uh I'm I'm kinda glad he held his ground because I'm I'm glad that you know, this was a passion of his to get this out years later, or just a curiosity. I, you know, I, I think the 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 flip side of that is, if he had if he had sort of gone along, there probably would not have been the the need or the maybe the pent up desire from fans to see this alternative version that you know the filmmakers uh, not involved with the third act. So I, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. Uh, to your point on having uh, the, the sort of the the female boss that we never get to meet. I think the the biggest plus, the biggest thing I'm a fan of with the Helglin cut is uh there's a lot more emphasis on Porter's relationship with women in his version uh that's there's somewhat there in the theatrical cut. Uh I'm thinking particularly, you know, the final shootout. Not only do we have a uh a, a woman as the the big mafia boss here of the, the syndicate, but uh we have uh, ultimately it's a, a woman who shoots him in that final train stop. It's someone that he has overlooked because I think he's you know, he's grown up in a world where he's he's really sort of always looked past uh women in his life or looked past like soft people, uh, looking for the threats and the targets. And that's his undoing in both versions of the film. There's his betrayal in a way of his uh wife. Um and I guess in different in the, the versions it's kind of skewed as far as if it was an actual betrayal or not um i think that's played up and heightened a little bit more in the the director's cut and i felt that was missing uh, a little bit with the emphasis on all the various uh mobsters which you have john glover in both but uh certainly uh his crew and that whole setup with the the bomb and the telephone thing uh that one, that's all that's missing. And that I, I wanted to ask you, since you're more of a fan of the theatrical version, d- do you like that the, that sort of leap in logic? That sort of because it, that's I don't know if you would have noticed it unless you knew the storyline about them having to change the entire third act. But knowing that, you kind of see like, oh, that's how they kind of they sort of swept the the table right there with that one bit of convenience with this this uh, telephone that's rigged to explode in this place that Porter is able to access from the. uh the trunk of a car. Did you does that still work for you even I, with all that knowledge?
2: I mean, I think there are a lot of really ridiculous uh coincidences and things that just magically work out in the third act of the theatrical cut of of Payback, but at the same time, it's a movie that knows what it is. And the movie that Hagalind delivered is a movie that doesn't know what it is, that thinks it's better than than it than it than it's capable of being. And and I think you see that even with that that opening
1: you got a lot of questions rattling around in your head how much money in the case anywhere between 350 and half a mil and how much do you need val we split at 50 50 how much
2: 130
1: grand we'll hit him on friday not enough and how much do you need val we split at 50 50 my money yeah well i'm up short my 70 grand i want it back 60 short seven oh! seven 70 grand 70. fat.
2: which is very nice like, it's very nice, like this idea of him walking up the bridge with all the voices and everything going on underneath mm-hmm. it. But ultimately, what, what does it mean? What does it add to the rest of it? It, it, that seems like kind of a cop out when you look back at, at Helgeland's version of this story, like a quick way to set up this guy that, that he's been wronged in this way and all that. Um, you know, I go back to the theatrical cut and I just think that, This is a movie where you can, you can relax, you can watch it, and you can enjoy it for exactly what it is. In the, um, director's cut, we, like you brought up the ending. I think that ending is, is, is very confused about what it wants to do, uh, with this character. Um, in the, uh, special features, they have a, um, documentary covering the making of both versions and everything that went in. And I was really impressed that uh Gibson was a part of that, that he, you know, wasn't just, um, you know, so oftentimes in Hollywood, when things like this happen, uh, the other person usually just goes, well, you know, this person didn't work out and we're, we're cut off for life kind of thing. Uh, he didn't Gibson, shy away from it. No, he, he, yeah, he didn't shy away. He was like, you know what? There are two different movies. Uh, I prefer the, the theatrical one, uh, but the other one, you know, is, is a strong film as well. But the one that we had to release was the theatrical one. And I think that's a very practical way of putting it. He also has a really good line that um because we were supposed to record this three weeks ago, I've completely forgotten what it was, <laughs> but it was something about how, you know, at the time period that this is coming out, 1999, you're, you're not making a movie for uh an elite audience. You're making a movie for a big wide audience and it has to play for, for that big wide audience. And I think that's influenced him as a filmmaker uh, as well. Like if you see uh Hacksaw Ridge or, or even Apocalypto, um, and Passion of the Christ. Like, they, these are definitely movies that play in a way that you might not expect them to, uh, you know, to a, to, to a wide range, range of people. Um, well,
0: even as an actor, he's sort of fallen mm-hmm. into uh Helgeland's version of payback, like it, it's like if this was something that they did together now, no one would bat an eye because he's he's done a number. There's one, was it Get the Gringo? Uh-huh, that, uh-huh. I mean, you know, that's you would the expectation would be there for the straight up edition now. I think, which I mean, it would be on a much smaller scale. It may be VOD or you know on a streaming service, but I, I think that I, I agree with you. I don't. I think Mel Gibson. I think. You know, that he's someone that believed in Helglin and believed in that original version mm-hmm. until he saw it and saw it like this isn't really coming together like the way I had hoped. And I don't think that Helglin thinks, you know, I, at one point on the uh, documentary, I don't he's not saying this is the greatest thing in the world. Like that I've created a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that that's uh, Gibson was honest in the assessment, especially of his stature at the time. That's like, yeah, there's there's going to be people coming for you know, lethal weapon fans and they're going to be pissed like that. This is what they, they saw. So I think they pushed that fan base as far as they could with the theatrical cut and the Helgeland one would have been, that would have been, there just wasn't a system in place to release that type of Mel Gibson movie in 1999. I don't think.
2: To be fair to the producers who decided to reshoot most of payback, it's not like they went in and just cut out all the character moments and just kept all the action scenes and then added a big action scene at the end or whatever. Um, you know, there seems to have been a real conscientious effort to make it a solid, you know, point A to point B to point C movie that, that works. And I think that's, I, I appreciate that about the, about the theatrical cut. Maybe more because I, I, I had seen the, the director's cut uh, as a first viewing. Um, you know, the, the fact that they were able to make this enjoyable and something worth watching, um, based on what what I saw that they had, um, you know, like I hate uh voiceover in in movies mostly, and, and I think it's largely unnecessary in in most of Payback, but I think it's extremely necessary in the opening.
1: GSW. That's what the hospitals call it, gunshot wound. Doctor has to report it to the police. That makes it hard for guys in my line to get what I'd call quality health care. Not many men know what their life's worth. I do, 70 grand. That's what they took from me, and that's what I was going to get back.
2: Like, we do need to have a sense of who this guy uh is, who he sees himself as being. Um, you know, some feeling about how he has been wronged and the walking across the bridge with the um chorus of voices under him that that didn't work for me uh, and it really doesn't work for me looking back at it. Uh and and um the uh in the in the special features uh, again Um, they mentioned something about in the, in Helgeland's cut, a homeless man takes the money. But if you go back and you look at the ending, it's, you know, the, like, it's very, like, you never actually see the homeless guy take the money. And then later in the car, in the final images, you see his hand next to a bag that's full of money. And, and just, you're kind of left again thinking, man, like this, like, again, the movie just doesn't quite know What it wants to be like, it wants to be cool, but it also, uh, you also want to get in a sense that he got away with something. Um, you know, it's a weird, uh, sort of, uh, drop off that you get from the ending of the, of Hauglund's version. And, and I feel satisfied when I, when I get to the end of the theatrical cut. And, and, you know, both movies have a lot of problems. Uh, I think the theatrical cut, this whole silliness with the dog, like, um, you know, I don't like to see dogs get killed, uh, mm-hmm. as much as the next person. Um, but, you know, it is pretty silly the way they, they keep the dog around in the theatrical cut. And, and you know what? It's silly what Helgeland does with the dog in, mm-hmm. in his cut. They should have just not had the dog, period.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a cheap. Yeah. I mean, bit. it's a, you know, it's a, a bit of hardness there of how hard the world is The you know, even the dog gets it in in the original version. Um, as far as how I really like how uh, Gibson, how Porter shows up in the director's cut. I, I like him just sort of stomping up those, those steps and just sort of appearing in the city um, without the, I guess the, you know, the mission statement or the, the goals that are set up in the, first 30 seconds of the theatrical version, but it does change things. It changes the, not only just our, our perception of the character, but, uh, I guess our interaction with the, the mobsters, uh, when they meet him, because, uh, having that knowledge about what he's after, what's been done to him from the, the get go in the theatrical version, we can laugh at the mobsters Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for their sort of shock and awe uh, at what this guy wants, the 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 pittance that he wants back, and the the danger he's willing to to bring down on his head for that. Uh, whereas certainly in the Hellglen version, where you don't really know for a time, uh, you're more on their side uh, as opposed to Porter's side because you're just as curious as far as like what what is he up to, what is he doing, and I think that that's a very big difference in the in the two. Probably the biggest difference is that in one film you're with Porter. The entire way, seeing it from his viewpoint and in Helgeland's version, you're for the most part, you're on defense, just like the syndicate. So I think that, that's a huge change just with that small amount of voiceover at the beginning.
2: I just don't know if Helgeland was ready for this kind of material, quite frankly. And I think I think that's what, you know, really sticks out to me watching both versions is that and I don't even know if he if he still w- would be ready. Because, I, I mean, I look at the films he's directed and, it's, uh, you know, the only good one, I think, is A Knight's Tale um and uh if you even if you look at his screenplays it's a mixed bag there as well um you know we, you've got LA confidential and you've got mystic river and i think there was something good in between there but then after that i don't know is there is there anything that that was really actually good um not that i can think of
0: uh i believe man on fire is well i received. hate man
2: on fire so
0: <laughs> that's I don't uh, right out <laughs> I don't hate it. Well, I don't know. I'll, let me say this. I've not actually completed it, so I walked oh, out of it well, in the theater. So, did you get to the part where they put a bomb up a
2: guy's rectum?
0: I did not get to that part, but that's, uh, yeah, that, that's not drawing me back. I'm not, uh, I'm not looking it up it on Netflix right now.
2: Yeah, The Postman uh, is not a good movie. Uh, you know, The Order, I never saw it. But, you know, Green Zone is a really boring drama um, Taking a Bell in One, Two, Three is a is a really uh, pointless remake of a much better movie. Um, you know, so so you know, I'm I i do not know, I'm very uh, I'm very torn on Helgeland, but but I'm but I'm but I'm confident that he wasn't right for this material at this time.
0: I, I just I disagree with you. I mean, I yeah, I understand why the the movie got taken away from him, or. Uh, you know, more accurately, he he walked away when it became clear that they were gonna they were gonna change the the ending. But um, I'm I'm happy I'm happy that both are in the world. Um, so I the only thing going over his credits that is I find more depressing is uh I feel like in his his youth or I guess relative youth uh filmmaking youth, uh he was he was taking. Bigger swings uh, with something like this, you know uh, the the Parker character uh, of Starks is very hard to, to put on screen, and then a uh, night's tale with the the the, the strange uh, music from all different uh, uh, eras. There, uh, it's it's getting uh, just looking at his filmography, it's it's it looks pretty generic after that. Like those are mm-hmm. two very interesting mm-hmm. films, and uh, yeah, not not so much now the uh the order i've never seen and then you know 42 which is is fine but um you know that's i would not look at that and be like ooh from the the guy who brought us a knight's tale <laughs> the jackie robinson story so um yeah that's that's what i find i I've, i i feel like people like you ben zook in the studio scared him they they scared him straight <laughs> and now he's he's producing vanilla crap that's what we're getting now
2: well i mean geez whoa <laughs> <laughs> An awful lot on me. Um, I don't think I'm responsible for Brian Helgeland's uh career past Tonight's Tale. Um, you know, and I do. am sure he's I, probably really
0: happy. He's probably just fine. Oh, but, he's you know, probably he's,
2: raking in the million millions yeah, from yeah. those LA confidential residual residual checks just keep coming in, I'm sure. sure. Um but I don't know. Uh <laughs> you know, I definitely would be in the camp of the payback theatrical cut. And, and, you know, to be fair, when I brought up that I was watching Payback to Other People, the one person who had seen it, um, you know, seemed to only be familiar with the, with the theatrical cut. And, and so I, I kind of stand by my assertion that, you know, we probably wouldn't be talking about this movie if it had just been the director's cut that had been released to theaters. And I also think an important distinction you made earlier, which is that, Gibson was the one who was on board with this movie. Gibson was the one who probably made this into a 90 million dollar movie or whatever um that it need to be. When you make a movie on that level with Mel Gibson at this time period, yeah, there's an expectation that that an audience is going to be able to find it accessible. And that expectation is something filmmakers should, you know, expect. To you know, to they should expect the expectation and not kind of treat it like like an enemy, like they're like they're doing something incredibly brave to piss off a whole audience of people.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly you, uh, if you're gonna get the benefit uh, of that uh, A-list above the title superstar, mm-hmm. Mel Gibson at that time, uh, you don't get to <laughs> you don't get to drive Dad's car. Uh, off the cliff <laughs> and then get pissed at him for, for you know, dinging it up. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know who that would be now, unfortunately, uh, as far as I, I, you know, if someone was uh, Christopher McQuarrie, uh I guess would be a similar sensibility to who is the that. Helpless. Who is that? Uh, he's, he's been doing a lot of work with Tom Cruise recently, like a oh. couple of mission impossible films, but uh writer of the usual suspects director of the way of the gun, you know, they, you know, if he was trying to do the way of the gun with one of the Mission Impossible series, I would understand the studio being like, uh, "All right, Sonny Boy, like you're gonna have to you're gonna have to give us a set piece with Tom Cruise hanging off an airplane." Like enough of this nonsense. So, sure, yeah, that's a, it's reasonable that Helgeland got this taken away from him.
2: It needed to be something like seventy five percent the studio version and twenty five percent Helgeland's version. You know, like to to kind of meet a happy medium. Um, and who knows what really happened? Like they're saying that it was kind of less dramatic than, than maybe it was at the time. Um, but I mean, a director gets moved off a movie, it gets reshot. Uh, what I read was that it was, it was the art director, uh, John Meyer, um, not even the art director for Payback, but, but a very famous art director in his own right who directed the, the, um, scenes for the, for the theatrical cut for the reshoot. Um, that's really weird. Like that does not happen very often. And he's had
0: to live <laughs> with the shame for decades. Now. <laughs> well, I,
2: he has two Oscars, so I don't think he he has much shame. <laughs> <laughs> at least, uh, especially not from me, because I like the theatrical cut. I think it's a really good movie. I would watch the theatrical cut uh, again, at least just on a purely entertaining standpoint.
0: For me, it's it's dropped off. You know, my, my fandom of it. Um... It's not what it was uh, back in the uh, 99 uh, when I I watched it probably a few times that year when it came to DVD. Um, But, you know, I'm also, uh, I'm not someone that I, I, you know, I watched the director's cut on DVD. I watched the special features years ago uh, and never again. So it's not one that one didn't stand off as some great lost masterpiece. Uh, I think my, my fandom of the source material thought like well this was cool it was cool to get to see that character uh you know approximation of that character on film pretty closely so that was that was cool but you know it's it went back on the shelf i don't i i don't know much like your friends i'd probably never was like trying get people to watch the straight up version i just that was just something for me and it almost kind of works i think like a uh like a, a bonus feature or like the the second disc uh, that should have been like in the uh, the original DVD release or something. I mean, they would have made less money, uh, but that would have been a hell of a, a, a package in nine back when DVDs were good. Back when they were uh, they were really throwing out a lot of cool box sets. So, I mean, do you think that we have
2: a knee jerk reaction to liking director's cuts versus the studio versions, um, at least today? Uh, I mean, because of our whole, like, kind of ingrown bias of, oh, the director is the artist and the author behind this work. And, and, you know, what he says has to be, you, you know, we, we have the, we have the retail, um, message, uh, kind of, uh, so, you know, the customer is always right. Um, mm-hmm. you know, film Twitter, uh, people, uh, think the director is always right. And do you think that kind of leads them to having like a knee jerk reaction to preferring director's cuts over theatrical cuts?
0: I mean, uh, sure. I'm, I, I'm, uh, you know, cause there, there's the argument you made. that's like, well, if you, if you trust that the, <coughs> the director, if you buy into the, the auteur theory, that's like, okay, this is the author. So I want to, I want to see what the, 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 the guy who made this, you know, if you're, if you're going to put a film to just one person as opposed to uh, a great number of people that contributed to it. Yes. Uh, but I mean the, I think probably the, I think it happens more often than not because when they do release a director's cut uh it's it's because they think they've got something that will sell. They think they've got mm-hmm. a, a something better to show. I mean, I I wonder how many uh director's cuts which would be like total, you know, garbage. I and I can't speak to it, but like uh during this conversation I thought of American History X, which is uh, you mm-hmm. know, that's a 98 film, so won't we'll apply it to this podcast, but you know that was something where the director got thrown off because he wanted to he wanted to go a completely different direction pretty much you know after the majority of the filming was done like in the editing room he wanted to start bringing in these sort of documentary influences certainly the studio could have released that and that could have been just nonsense could have been garbage but i don't think they they're in the the business of like let's just let's just show you how bad the director lost his way i don't i don't you mentioned uh Oliver Stone which i think uh is Alexander, is is that rivaling like Ridley Scott's editions? Is that because that's one that's like I know had multiple and that was him. That was I, him I, think I think they're in a competition.
2: I think they're in a competition with each other to see who can have as many director's cuts uh, as right. the next person. It just doesn't happen that often.
0: So you're Stone <laughs> or Ridley Scott. Other than that, I don't think we get to see multiple director cuts.
2: I think, I think sometimes it can dilute, uh, you know, the, uh, the effectiveness of, of the movie itself because you say, Oh, hey, I love Blade Runner. It's my favorite movie mm-hmm. ever. Yeah. And then someone says, well, which version did you watch? Did you watch the unicorn version or the, the voiceover <laughs> version or the ultimate European version uh-huh. or whatever? And, and it just becomes, you know, a big, uh, you know, circle jerk to see, to talk about all these different versions and everything that, that are out there. And yet, um, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, definitive classics like Citizen Kane, Casablanca. Um, no other versions of those movies exist. Uh, it's just that one that, that everyone was able to seal their, um, approval on. And it makes me think maybe directors should be more hesitant because mm-hmm. of that. Uh, like, like I can definitely see, like, there are, there are times when a director's cut is necessary, but, um for example, the American Gangster uh director's cut uh that Ridley Scott put out, which I don't even know if it was a it was a director's cut, but it was just billed as an extended edition. Um the ending of that extended edition is horrible and, and laughably bad, where Denzel Washington comes out of jail and Russell Crowe buys him a a coffee at Starbucks and it's like oh yeah Frank they call it a a cafe latte and blah 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 and it's this really cheesy corny scene between Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe at the end of this really wonderful movie and and i think back to the ending of the theatrical cut which is just uh Denzel Washington walking out onto the street and hearing a hearing rap music coming from a car uh hearing the sound of his uh, you know, people, but it's not the sound that he's familiar with. Mm. And that's his, you know, his, uh, destiny. That's his existence now is a stranger, uh, you know, in a land that he was once king of. And, and, you know, that's a great ending, which I imagine they must have come up in, with in the editing room because the, uh, that ending of, of Scott's extended edition is, is so terrible. And it just makes me wonder, like, like, why can't a filmmaker look at that ending and just say, you know what? I don't need to have my seal of of approval on this, uh, you know, for everything. I can compromise and say, you know what? What happened here was the better choice to go with.
0: Yeah, if they're gonna I'm far more interested in uh I guess what like Soderberg does, I guess for fun, where he he recuts other people's films and changes them like that mm-hmm. that to me, I mean obviously that's not definitive at all. It's someone who didn't work on the film in any proximity, is just a fan but that's more interesting as far as having some sort of alternate version than uh having a filmmaker i guess consistently tinker uh throughout the the years because i i can't remember what i was watching but uh there was a, i was watching a film where uh, the director said that he actually, you know, he liked watching his older movies and seeing all the shit that he would never do now. Mm-hmm. But it was totally appalling to him, the idea of going back and changing anything, because it just it just wouldn't be honest because you can't. That was the that was his viewpoint of the world, you know, two decades ago. And so you if you change one thing, you know, it's never going to be completely how he would do it now. So why even start? And I I tend to agree with that philosophy so yeah i don't know i don't know what conclusion i came to here i guess less director's cuts or more by directors that didn't direct the film i don't i don't know what i'm saying but i
2: I just think okay well okay here's that's an interesting road to go down because i think um the alien 3 uh extended cut which was not produced by david fincher at all because he disowned the movie is an incredible improvement from the version that fox put out in 1992 Um, and that's one that people should seek out if they haven't already. Uh, and then I look, and then I look at like even James Cameron's extended edition of Aliens. And I think, um, you know, that was unnecessary. Uh, he should not have, he should not have done that. You don't need to see another five minutes of machine guns, uh, firing at the aliens or whatever. Um, you know, you like, like it's, so it's just, it's just funny. Like the, uh, having to think about when do you need to hold back and when do you need to step in and and create another version of this movie or whatever. Uh, I feel like there should be more director's cuts of bad movies, of movies that failed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, All the King's Men, the Steven Zalian uh, film from 2006, I feel like there's probably a great director's cut uh, somewhere of that movie but um but you we only see director's cuts of movies that that there's some interest in see mm-hmm. in, in people seeing them so
0: yeah i've always thought they should go back to uh, bobby fisher as well um uh, because I, I despise the fact that the kid offers a draw that's just it's terrible you got to change that there's there, no way what? that's just totally un-American. what the know?
2: fuck is wrong <laughs> with you i love that movie <laughs>
0: i 'm just i'm just uh I, I like that we we host a show together and i can I can throw out a searching for Bobby Fisher joke <laughs> about the ending, and you can get it because that 's also one of my favorites it 's probably my favorite sports film of all time uh, if you classify that as as sport uh,
2: so uh, I mean this week we got to watch a movie that you have a lot of history with, and I think next week we'll we'll have one that 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 I feel like I have a lot of history with and and i'd be surprised if you told me that you didn't. Uh, so oh wait, no wait, I I've skipped ahead, so I'm completely uh, lost.
0: Uh, <laughs> I was like, you have a lot of history with the uh, message in a bottle.
2: No, 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 because I so okay, so you have to forgive me because I was in Wilcox, Arizona, and I was in a really horrible hotel, and I had nothing to watch. Like I had watched Mrs. Doubtfire three times on cable. Um, and so I ended up watching message in a bottle. And so I am very much looking forward to, to that discussion. Um, but to give it away, the movie I was actually talking about uh, was office space, which I'm really looking forward uh, to, to checking out again.
0: I have to admit a little disappointment now. Cause I was like, Whoa, Ben is going <laughs> to blow my mind with his message in a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, I, I have never seen it. This will be a true first time watch. For me, so uh, yeah, I'll have of fresh eyes on Message a bottle, but I, I think that'll that'll do it for payback. We, we kind of we took that further. We went into director's cut territory, so I, I like that where the discussion went. I'm just uh, happy
2: you're editing this episode and not me. So,
0: <laughs> I mean, it's just gonna you know I'm just gonna put the the, the sound effects uh, of that first sequence that you hated from the director's cut payback. That's just gonna be playing throughout. <laughs> Anytime you talk, it's gonna be those voices and that, that stomping of <laughs> feet. <from Mil laughs> Uh, Yeah, that'll do it. So uh, join us next time for for Ben's uh, epic tale of passion, Uh, his connection to Message in a Bottle. So we'll set you up for failure on that one. You've got to bring it for that Kevin Costner joint. Hopefully, we're not setting ourselves up for failure by promoting our next episode being the classic message in a bottle. If you'd like to keep supporting the show, which we really hope that you do, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at 99 from 99. We're also hosted by Podbean. You can find us the feed under podcast99from99.podbean.com. But by our next episode. The one we've been waiting for message in bottle we should be on Apple Podcasts and iTunes to make it easier for a lot of you we appreciate those early adopters and we hope that uh, you help boost our numbers over on the iTunes charts Till then find us on followingfilms.com and hit us up at any of those social media platforms at 99 from 99